Hey, I'm Dash, father of two adopted daughters and two biological sons between the ages of 2 and 13. And I'm Swai. I'm a year and a half into parenting, and it is way harder than I thought it would be. You are now listening to the sounds of Imperfect Dads, a parenting podcast. We're staked out in this little corner of the internet to create a community that has empathy for and camaraderie with other imperfect parents. A place where we can learn from other people how to be better parents. And where we can occasionally figure out how to be cooler parents. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and give us a rating on iTunes or Stitcher. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, which are great platforms to share the podcast with all of the people you know, as well as a number of different troll bots. Hey, thanks for listening to episode one, where we'll visit with Dr. George Williams, who's currently the assistant director at the Kansas Department for Children and Families. Now let's make like a subwoofer and get this thing bumping. <laughs> Horrible. Sup, Sly? Hey, man. Good to talk to you today. Good to talk to you. You doing all right? Hey, you know, I can't, couldn't be better. Nice. Over the last couple of weeks... Have you had any times where you have felt like an imperfect dad? Yeah, you know, one of the things that drives me nuts is when I am trying to do something, trying to accomplish something, trying to check something off my task list for the day, and the baby just will not stop fussing. Oh, so this that is a tough one. On a, man, it happens all the time, and there's not always something I could do about it. The other day I was I was in the middle of experiencing this again for the, you know, hundred millionth time. And one of the things that hit me was that my child just wanted some attention. I had kind of been distracted parenting, parenting while distracted for a while and hadn't had a chance to just give him like FaceTime to, to be intentionally present in the moment. And as soon as I did that, he, you know, we played for a few minutes and then he was fine, you know, going back to his toys and playing with his toys or doing whatever he was going to do. But it really struck me that all it took was like five minutes to be intentional and to like, to put aside the thing that I was working on and to be fully present. It's something that I, always struggle with being present, not, not worrying about what's next, not worrying about the thing I'm trying to do or what's next on my task list or, uh, you know, where I'm headed or, or what's the next step, but just fully being present at the time. And all it took was five minutes of that. And he was in great shape for the next, you know, however long till he took yeah. the nap. Negotiating expectations, and some of those are expectations that we have of ourselves. Some of those are external expectations. But that balance of productivity and being present with kids can be really difficult. And I for sure can remember times where I felt like I needed to get a bunch of stuff done while my wife was at work and got frustrated when I couldn't because of the kids and didn't realize as early as you did that being present with them was as important, if not more important than being productive. Yeah. And you know, it's really apparent when it's a child that won't stop fussing until you, you know, drop what you're doing and actually pay attention. But I think it has like some bigger connotations for the rest of our lives too. Uh, I heard someone wise once say 
that the destination always betrays the journey. And I think what they were saying is that when we are always looking for what's next or what the next experience is going to be or where we're going to be in five years or whatever, like we forget that the that the journey is what's the important part. It's the people you're with. It's the things that you're doing at this moment. How are you like being fully present with yourself and with the people around you rather than, you know, kind of always looking for a stepping stone to get to something else or to, to the next cool thing. I heard a wise person once say that your baby is fussing because they have a need that needs to be fulfilled not because they're a little demon jerk. So we can always remember those that sage wisdom. Was that Gandhi or Confucius? I don't know. I'll have to look up the footnote on that. What about you, Christian? What was your imperfect dad moment of the week? Well, I have been lured into what appears to be a sucker bet and am now being accused of point shaving. Um, I'm coaching my third graders basketball team and before the season he asked if his team 11 third grade boys could have a sleepover if they scored 50 points in a game and these games are four eight minute quarters 32 minutes of running clock and half of these kids have never played basketball before first game they scored 24 points second game they scored like 27, 28. Third game, 48 points. And <laughs> did you did you pull all the starters for the fourth quarter? No, I, I made no adjustments. And here's the thing about third and fourth graders. There were I was having a couple of issues. One is you cannot get third and fourth graders to moderate their pace or take their foot off the gas when they're winning they just want to go 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 (laughs) secondly with this carrot being dangled out there of this 50 point goal they were just getting more and more excited on the bench as it became more and more of a blowout we went down in the game i think four points to zero and then we scored something like 40 straight points and we ended up winning the game 48 to 7. So you can imagine if you're a parent and your kid's playing on the other team and your opponent's winning like 40 to 5 and all these kids are just going nuts, like jumping off the bench cheering. <laughs> it was fairly embarrassing. And I was trying to tell them like, okay, just chill, just chill, just be chill. And then they were super disappointed at the end because they were two points away from glory. And now I'm concerned that I'm going to need to have this sleepover and my wife's going to go have a sleepover at one of her friend's houses when (laughs) that day happens because she's not going to own this sucker bet that I took. What was like, what was that like consoling a bunch of third graders who were upset that they only won by 41 points? Um, Yeah, we had to do some contextualization there. And then we have also had to have a lot of talks about sportsmanship because my son got over it after a couple of days and started saying things like, well, we're just going to have to score 100 points in the next game. (laughs) And, well, we'll just have to score 50 points in each of the next three games so we can have three sleepovers. And we had to set some parameters around what was actually going to happen and appropriate sportsmanship. 
Yeah, that's pretty fair. Yeah, so uh, my advice is don't bet your kids because it can go south real quick. (laughs) That's good advice for all of us, I think. Listen, if you want to share an experience where you felt the reality of your imperfection as a parent, feel free to email us. We'd love to hear your stories. Imperfectdads at gmail.com or you can hashtag imperfectdads on Twitter. Today's episode is brought to you by EZQ.com, a new meal delivery service for people who love barbecue made simple. Each month, EZQ will deliver to your doorstep a propane smoker already filled with pre-seasoned meat of your choice. Brisket, pork shoulder, turkey, country style ribs, whatever strikes your fancy. Simply plug the smoker in and the unit will cook your meat to perfection. EZQ, where we make things easy on you. Order now and get a sauce upgrade of your choice for free. KC Sweet, Southern Mesquite, or even go Carolina Mustard Sauce and ruin your meat. And as a special thank you to our listeners, enter code DADSMEAT for 10% off your first order. Easy Q. So easy, it even makes using a Traeger look difficult. We spend the majority of our time and effort parenting, but we're people. We have interests too. In each episode, we want to have a segment called Dad Distractions where we talk about something that we're enjoying, that we find interesting, or that we're generally digging right now. I don't know if you've heard Sly, but February is Black History Month. Yeah, something uh, was trending on Twitter about that. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Usually is. I have been, over the last few years, picking up different resources to read, sometimes new ones, sometimes ones that I'm familiar with. I usually start at MLK weekend and then go through February, and as people are having the conversations about race this time of year, try to refresh or expand my knowledge base. This year, I have two things. The new thing is a book called Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby which has the very uplifting and relaxing tagline, the truth about the American church's complicity in race. Doesn't that just give you warm, fuzzy feelings? Yeah, good uh, good fireside with a you know, nice warm glass of kombucha. <laughs> Indeed. This is an important book because while a lot of people outside of especially evangelicalism are vocal about how problematic the the relationship between race and the church is. This is one of those books where it's like the call is coming from inside the building. And Jamar Tisby, you know, he's a, a historian and a guy who's been really active in the church. And this almost feels like him sounding a turn back alarm that will either change people's minds or, um, you know, the church Christians will just kind of continue to lose their voice when it comes to the issue of race in America and solutions. So it's history, which some people don't always find super exciting, but I think it's written fairly concisely and 
gives us a lot of context for what's going on today and also a lot to think about and some pretty big challenges. The other thing I have is a documentary that was released, I think, three years ago. It's called The Black Panther's Vanguard of the Revolution. Did you ever get a chance to see that? Yeah, I think I saw it on your recommendation, actually. Oh, nice. Well, good job. Thanks for listening to me. I saw it on PBS. Now it's on Netflix. Um, I would say the Black Panthers are maybe one of the more misunderstood aspects of the civil rights movement. It's something that everybody's heard about, but people don't know a ton of facts about. And so they say bonkers things like, yeah, the Black Panthers are just like the Black KKK, which is an egregious false equivalence. But this particular documentary was really well done and tells the stories not only of who the Black Panthers were, but the work that they did, including but not limited to providing free meals for kids, which was a precursor to the free meal program in public schools, and working on the consistent and equal application of rights such as freedom of speech. So check it out. What are you digging these days? Listen, man, my brain has been completely warped from the combination of Twitter and 140 characters at a time and only having like 30 seconds at a time to look away from my child that's getting into everything. So my biggest challenge right now is reading something that is longer than tweet length. So I, together with a couple of friends, decided to start a book club. Ooh, book club. Is it young adult fiction? It is. We're going to read through the entire Twilight series. Hey. That should should take us through June. For the record, Luke kissing Leia is still a better love story than Twilight. Yeah. uh, One is incestuous and one is just fantasy. (laughs) What are you actually reading? Well, we're going to start off with a whole bunch of things, but the first book that we're reading is entitled... There will be no miracles here. What's that about? It sounds pessimistic. It's a a memoir by Casey Gerald. Have you read any of this yet? Any of the book yet? Yeah. No. No, Well, I look forward to. I look forward to a full report, including a trifold poster board art project. You know, it was Amazon's best book of all. Of October 2018, it was the top book for the whole nice. month. Fair enough. Uh, so he was he grew up he grew up poor in Dallas and then went to Yale, interned at Lehman Brothers, did an MBA at Harvard, and had like this really like high ceiling uh, professionally. And then uh, just kind of. This book is supposedly a story of him kind of finding himself and returning to himself a little bit. So it's kind of uh, it's kind of the opposite of a politician's memoir when they talk about how great they are. Uh, it's a lot more complicated and nuanced than that. For some context, what was the last full book that you read and how long did it take you to get through it? The last full book I read was... Uh, Kevin Cruz's book, uh, One Nation Under God. It's about 300 pages, if I remember correctly, and it took me about four weeks to get through it. 
and that was really dedicated to that was uh that was pretty much every nap time and the few minutes before bed when I still had any sort of coherence left in my brain. Was there any wearing the baby walking around the kitchen reading the book? You know, there wasn't, but I do have to say that the other day the baby threw both hands down on the keyboard of my laptop and all of a sudden the Google, like the reader, started operating and it started like reading all the text that was on the screen. And I'm wondering if my child just unlocked some sort of technological marvel that will enable me to listen to uh, listen to digital books in the same way that I would a podcast, which would make which would make things much more accessible for those of us that don't have the ability to focus their eyes away from a child playing with, you know, light sockets. Did you have to? Did you figure out how to toggle this feature on and off, or did you just have to mute your computer until you're ready to hear something again? I, I did figure out how to turn it off. It was the X in the corner. Oh, that's good. But, you didn't have uh, to say, like, I, hey, baby, come over here and bang on the computer again. <laughs> yeah. It's like an old Nintendo. You just, like, unplug it and, like, bang on the side of it and blow out the keyboard or something. Everything <laughs> goes back to normal and starts back up. Nice. We have a conversation that we want to share with everybody. What do you say we get to that? I'd love to. We had the chance to talk to Dr. George Williams, who is an assistant director at the Kansas Department for Children and Families. He's previously served as the executive director for the National Center for Fathering, the director of addiction and prevention services at the Kansas Department of Social and Rehabilitation Services, and as a consultant for numerous organizations. George and his wife have four children, He loves playing the guitar, and his all-time favorite car is a 1989 Saab 900 Turbo. Seriously? 1989 Saab? Listen, that's what it says on the internet, so it must be true. We should ask him about that. We will. George, I want to jump right in. I uh, I have to know, I've, this has been bothering me all day. Uh, I, I've grown up around a lot of people that are car guys, but I've got to know why your favorite car of all time is a 30-year-old Scandinavian car. <laughs> yes, it's just the engineering that's went into that car. Um, Saab, um, the... the acrostic stands for Scandinavian automobiles, airplanes, and boats. And so they've kind of blended uh, their design of uh, planes into the, the car. So the, the keys on the, on the floor of the car, um, the, the one that you, you saw, the, um, the 900 has kind of the back tail of a, of, of a plane, and then the, the hood opens uh, reverse. It's, it's just a fun car to drive. It sounds like a fun car to drive. We'll have to see if we could borrow one from somebody and take a little spin sometime. It could be like uh, podcasters getting coffee in cars. It'll be the next <laughs> hit thing. <laughs> I think that one would really take off. George, you have some different ways that you talk about fathering, and you have a triumvirate of um, characteristics that you talk about for engaged fathers. 
fathers who are accessible, involved, and responsive. And just so we can start people off slow, we'll go through each three of those. Let's maybe start with the one that is easiest for most dads to understand. What does it mean for a dad to be involved? Yeah, so in the research literature, when you look at um, what's being studied as it pertains to father fatherhood, involvement is like the number one topic. And in short, what it is, it's uh, coming, get, uh, being a part of your child's world. And uh, like, for instance, a young child, so the entry into that world sometimes is on your knees and playing with them. And so it's just being a part of your child's world, whether it's in, in wherever your child's at, whether it's school, whether it's part of a faith community, um, uh, being a part of their, their world, and then also inviting them into your world. So that's what involvement is. What differentiates then involvement from accessibility? So accessibility is uh, being available uh, for your child. And so that ideal is uh, more important for, well, it's really important for like even a newborn child. So when they cry, that your response, you know, that you, uh, you know, react to that and, uh, you know, making yourself available to meeting their needs. But then also as they grow older to know that they can contact you. And this is especially important for dads who are not in the home, that that they uh, are accessible to their child, maybe through having their own you know, personal phone number and making sure that they answer that whenever they see that call from that child. So that's kind of the ideal about that accessibility or being available. And I know that's probably a difficult one for a lot of dads. And I'll speak from my experience, like it's difficult for me to be accessible, not so much in the not being around because I am around my kids a lot, but that kind of emotional accessibility. When you're working with dads and helping them to be more emotionally accessible, what are some ways in which you coach them through that? Well, in some of the settings that I've worked with uh, dads, uh, they may not be in the home with their ch- with their child. And so, you know, taking advantage of technology today with uh, being able to FaceTime with your child um, in prison settings uh, it would be making sure that you have those phone calls but also um, the written word and if your child's young then it would it might entail right you know drawing pictures um, but th- that contact having with your child is so critical uh, critically important once a child does feel like the father's accessible what do healthy responsive actions look like and so that, yeah, the re- responsiveness, or, or another word you could use is, uh, you know, responsibility, is take, making sure that you're taking care of your child's needs. And so those are not just the physical needs, but it relates to the emotional needs of your child, uh, social needs of your child. Um, you know, that, that, that kind of dovetails back into the involvement. And then uh, a spiritual is an, an, another need of your child. So when you take all those three of those things together, you have air. And so it's kind of this ideal of fathers are necessary air for their their children. You know, that's how we nurture them. That's how they grow and thrive is through us being accessible, 
involved and responsive. Speaking of uh, kids who are thriving then, uh, I was looking through your Strong Dad Super Kids curriculum, uh, which was which was really well put together, uh, and we'll make sure and include that in the show notes for anybody who wants to, to take a look at that. Talk about your work with uh, the children's, the Head Start programs, um, improving the language and literacy, cognitive, physical, and social-emotional development of your children. Um, and you, you really emphasize four different areas of engagement. Do you want to talk about those playing, reading, talking, and caring? Yes. And um, so in that program, what we were targeting was we were targeting um, Head Start and Early Head Start um, dads. You know, one thing I did in my um, dissertation uh, research uh, was I, I was looking at father involvement, the quality and quantity of it, and um, on the outcomes of, of the children. So what I had as a data set, I was looking at data that, adults were providing about their childhood. And so what that allowed me to do is to look at different points where their dads were involved. And it was, so this is a point I want to make is that early involvement is super critical because if a dad was not involved early on, and I'll say the first five years of life, and he tried to come back into the child's life, and he did, and he was very involved even after that time, then the outcomes never uh, got back into the positive range. Um, so it was like they couldn't make up for that time. So what we did was target dads at this critical juncture of uh, the, their early development. And so we, what we were trying to do is we were trying to help them uh, get involved and have a kind of like a framework for involvement. So we actually had a kit that we produced for them um, that, that had items that they could use for reading, for play, uh, for talking and for caring. And so um, it, it's all about this uh, ideal of, uh, you know, research showing that when you read with your children early in life, they're more likely to continue to be involved and develop their own confidence to help their children read. And so daily parent-child reading from infancy helps them on ongoing cognitive skills and vocabulary growth. And then our uh, caring, as it relates to caring, uh, caring's uh, father's attitude and sensitivity to his child has it has a positive influence on their social and emotional development so uh, uh, a father's care is even associated with um, sons who are more empathetic toward other children and then as it relates to talking fathers who regularly talk to their children you know help their language development and so preschool age children with highly involved fathers had been shown to uh, have higher vocabulary skills and then play when you talk about play, fathers and you know mothers, they play differently, and a child benefits from both types of play. But a father's play tends to be uh, less restrictive and more rambunctious, and mothers tend to engage through gentle and guided play. And so it's about this ideal of the complementary natures of mom and dads and, and, and being you know well-rounded and receiving both of those. You talk about the importance of reading. You have four kids, and... Can you remember any particular books that they enjoyed having read to them? Uh, yeah, I remember uh, uh, Pizza, Pizza for Jordy. Uh, he's our youngest son, and um, he really enjoyed that book. And I remember going to his school and uh, uh, reading that book, and we kind of live action made him the pizza. And so I was, and that's what the book is about. Um, the the dad um, um, takes the the uh, son and 
acts as though he's the dough, and so he's rolling him and and then putting different toppings on him and puts him in the oven. And so we kind of went through that. So that was that was a blast. We're in that stage with our two-year-old where it's the same books all the time. So I have a handful of books that I can do by heart. And it trips me up a little bit because there's a book called The Little Blue Truck. And then there's a sequel that's like The Little Blue Truck leads the way and goes into the city. And sometimes I'll start reading one of them. They both start out with the exact same first page. And I'll start reading one of them and get a couple pages into it and realize, oh, I'm not actually reading this. I have (laughs) both books memorized and I'm reciting the wrong book. So I know that my son is really paying attention at bedtime when he like tells me, dad, uh, you're kind of being an idiot right now. And you should actually read this book to me. Christian, maybe if you were a little more engaged... Well, you know, that is the thing. Like one of the challenges of being an engaged parent is you wake up early with your kids and then you're with them all day or you're going out and you're doing work. And so it is, it does take a lot of energy and focus to be engaged with them from dinner time through bedtime, even though it's not a long period of time, it can only be a couple of hours because my energy is down and I've been engaging with people all day, it does take uh, an astounding amount of focus to kind of stick in there and remain present with them. Yes, and it's, it's challenging. You know, I've been a part of the Imperfect Dads Club for about uh, two decades, and uh, well, actually three decades. And, uh, <laughs> um, and, 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 you know, one thing I learned, though, it was that at first I was uh, kind of... Uh, toying with this idea of fatherhood is a sacrifice, but, you know, really it's more of an investment because there's, there are times when it is a struggle, as you mentioned. And, uh, you know, I, I have had to go to my children and ask for forgiveness so many, you know, so many times uh, in, in my failures as a, a father and thank God for his grace and their grace. Um, but uh, it is, it's, it is an investment and there's a return and there's a reward in, in, in that. And, uh, so I just want to encourage you. Uh, yeah, it, it it is tough, but man, uh, if as you already experienced you, the blessings, and it, it is tough for dads who have been non-custodial parents for a while, who have not been in the picture. There's definitely a stigma, like some of which is earned, but pretty unkind nicknames. We call them um, deadbeat dads. We have some other names for them. And some of the work that you do is that two-pronged work of working with dads who want to get back into their kids' lives, but then also working with social workers and helping them see and probably really just be reminded of that value of reconciliation after they have seen so many broken relationships. When you're working with social workers, how do you mentor them and guide them um, to get dads reinvolved to have that desire to? Yeah, so that's a really good question. And uh, that that's something I learned early on when I was working with the dads, of course, is... Uh, and I was unprepared. My undergraduate degree was in computer science, and and I've had work in church ministry, but uh, I really didn't have the tools early on, and so I that's why I went back to school for that. But um, you know, I think so, something that's 
was uh, critically important was to help the uh, social workers to see the importance of the role of the dads and from a, a, a few different angles. And, you know, I, 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 you know, I would share with them, like, if you saw an accident in the middle of the intersection, you know, how many different, you know, uh, angles would you have to see it from to know the full picture of it? And, you know, they talk, and they come up with those four. And so the, the, the first view is, uh, you know, what does the research say? And there is just a, you know, a deluge of research that shows the importance of the role of uh, fathers. Dr. Ronald Rohner at the University of uh, Connecticut, he uh, did what's called, a, they call it a meta-analysis, but it's just research on research articles. So he looked at a, about 100 different studies at, that spanned 40 years, and he compared two variables, father love and mother love, and he found out that um, father love was just as important as mother love. And, you know, in some cases, uh, for some outcomes, it was even more important. Um, so the research is, uh, is conclusive. And uh, as a matter of fact, it, the most rigorous research has been done, you know, with the scientific uh, uh, experiment where you have the control group and the, um, the treatment group. Um, and so that's one corner. The other corner is, um, you know, what do... Um, the children say and um you, you've heard this and you might probably said it yourself you know my, my my dad can beat up your dad you know my dad's stronger than your dad my dad's smarter than your dad uh because in the child's eye you know he is faster than a speeding bullet more powerful than a locomotive um and and at the national center for father we uh did this father of the year essay contest where we had kids write um what their father means to them in 300 words from kindergarten to 12th grade. And over the years, we collected over a, a million essays. And I can tell you this, that even children that had dads that were, we would consider bad dads, they, in, in every case, they would come back and say, you know, they might share their hurt, but then they'd say, I, I still wish he knew that I love them and want him in my life. And, and so, you know, that, you know, one of those corners is the child's perspective. And so um, you share that with the uh, social workers and then um, also from the mom's perspectives and, you know, some research related to that and share that. And then, and then you know, I, I challenge them with, so what do you see? You know, what is your attitude? Do you see um, or understand that most men want to be involved in their child's life? And as you mentioned, a lot of men are um, not... Uh, deadbeat, but actually dead broke, and uh, some of those things that that keep them from being involved is are related to shame. You know that I can't provide for my child, and uh, and and so I I, I I shrink back from involvement. I know there's a lot of conversation around uh, dads who didn't have dads or didn't have dads in their lives at least. Uh, so speaking of shame, a lot of times. Uh, in, in my experience working with folks, it's been uh, an example of uh, they just they felt the shame that they didn't know what was going into being a dad because they never had somebody be a dad to them. How does that play into a cycle of, of bad dads begetting bad dads? Yeah, so this ideal of uh, um, generational father absence. So 
the positive side I want to share a statistic is that uh, you know you have about 75 million children in the the United States and uh, about 50 million of the children do have dads they live in the homes with their biological dads and uh, we have but we do have this large segment um, of uh, so props to those dads that are involved um, which is the, the majority but th then you have about this 25% uh, of the children growing up in homes without their biological fathers present and so as you kind of mentioned there, there could be this cycle of father absence that 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 re you know repeats itself and um, some of that is, you know, when you think about the role of a dad, uh, it is social learning. Sad, uh, it is social learning. So if you don't see a model for uh, know another way unless, you, you know, how can you go another way unless you know another way? And then how can you go that other way unless somebody shows it to you? And I can remember, you know, 30-some years ago when, my, uh, when the nurse gave me my first, you know, first son, um, putting him in my you know, arms and I'm holding him. I'm, and have you ever smiled so much your face started hurting you or your muscles? Um, but I remember thinking in the back of my mind, when is she going to give me that book to let me know what to do with this child? <laughs> it, you know, yeah. I'm thinking that and she's right there, but I don't ask her. And that's, you know, what a lot of men, you know, we we might not know what to do, but we don't you know, we don't even ask. And so we do the best that we know how. And sometimes, you know, we hit the mark and a lot of, a lot of times we miss, miss the mark. So I think that part of this breaking of this generational cycle um, is for men to be able to talk about certain things. And, and like you said, what was the impact of growing up without my dad in the home? What was that impact on my life? And then where do I get that information that I do need to help me to understand what my child needs so I can provide them for that. We've talked a lot about what kids need and sometimes some of the deficits in regard to them getting what they need. You've done quite a bit of work with trauma and when a lot of us hear that word we think of a singular traumatic experience. What does trauma look like for kids as it pertains to them not having their needs met over a period of time? You know, for me, it was just pretty in, enlightening to, um, um, you know, learn about the ACEs. And I was a, kind of a late learner. And so what I'm talking about is a, a study that was done back in uh, late 1990s. And, and it was called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. And so the, the idea was if you had some experiences that were really negative in your childhood, they would affect your adult outcomes. And, and so those experiences could be related to abuse, whether it's physical, emotional, or sexual, neglect, physical or emotional, or household dysfunction, mental illness, in, in having someone that was incarcerated in your family, or someone with mental illness, or a mother that, or, or someone that experienced family violence, or substance abuse, or divorce, or separation. And, and so... Um, you, you know, one one of the factors of, uh, you know, resiliency factors as it relates to uh, child experiencing trauma, because when you look at trauma, um, it in its uh, milder form, it could be, you know, positive stress. 
And so if, uh, an example of that might be, uh, you know, I'm taking this test as a child. I'm nervous about this test, but it's, a, you know, it's a kind of a good thing. Uh, there's, there'll be good results. And so I have to learn how to manage that. And uh, the thing that helps you manage stress all the way up to, you know, that positive to the, to the most traumatic experience, like your house burning down or something like that, or, uh, you know, you could name any uh, automobile accident, any one of those, is to have uh, that social support. And so that's the role of the, you know, the dad and the mom so that they can help their child understand and navigate these feelings um, so they can help them kind of regulate back to calm calmness. Um, and, and so when the dad's missing, um, you know, and, and just going even back to the ACEs, you know, one of those things is if, if the, if divorce or separation. So if you don't have those resources, it's it, it's really uh, troublesome for the child. And uh, when you talk about the, the impact of that, and so it could be, um, you know, one single event that happens that could, you know, you don't get over that. It's the impact of it stays with you. It actually impacts a child's uh, um, brain development. And, uh, um, it, um, and so it makes it more difficult. It can make the, you know, it's kind of a snowballing effect that can impact how they learn. Um, so, th- so that's why it's important for parents. Um, I think first of all, um, is to, uh, you know, understand how trauma might've impacted them, but then also being on alert, um, for their child as well. Yeah. I have a few of the, uh, statistics from that ACE study, uh, that were just really mind blowing for me. So first of all, you kind of uh, you you kind of went through them, but there's there's ten different categories, and so everybody rates on a scale of zero to ten how many of these experiences you've had. Uh, and almost two thirds of adults have at least one, and if you have one, there's an eighty seven percent chance that you have two or more. Uh, and it it just as you said, you kind of gave the analogy of a snowball effect. Uh, but there's a greater risk for chronic diseases, mental illness, violence, and being a victim of violence. Uh, So you kind of think of it as a cholesterol score, like a cumulative number of things. But Mm -hmm. uh, if you have have a score of four or higher, you're twice as likely to be a smoker, seven times more likely to be an alcoholic, uh, increases the risk of emphysema and chronic bronchitis by 400%. And suicide by 1,200%. Yeah, crazy, yeah. Yeah, just unbelievable stuff. Uh, it Up to the point of if you have uh, six or higher, uh, your average lifespan is shortened by 20 years. Yes, and that's a, those are strong points that you're making, Ben. And I'll just uh, say one more is that, you know, it was interesting because that, that uh, population that was being studied in, in 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 the the first aces is uh, there were seventeen thousand, but these were people that were largely you know middle class, college educated, you know, employed, had good health insurance, and so you, when you talk about that number of if from that group, that sixty seven percent had one or more. You think about people that are less resourced, and uh, to you know to address their issues that their, their scores you know are are likely to be uh, higher. He actually did an ACEs study at one point, and uh, the average score was something like eight and a half. Uh, and and there, wow. were, there were some kids that had uh, nine or ten. And uh, it, was, it was just mind-blowing to, to see 
the way that it be, you know, the way that it affects behavior, the way that it affects physical health, mental health, all of this stuff, and you see it playing out, and it just totally changes the way that you view uh, people who are who are acting out or or have some sort of behavioral disorder. Yes, yeah, so and the line that, that that is common to share as it relates to being trauma informed is instead of saying to a person what's wrong with you it's what happened to you Mm. and so knowing their story of how they got to where they're at and and it so it changes your whole interactions as a parent with a child that's experienced trauma there are things that you have to understand that approaches that don't that that might be traditional don't work you know it's really about building this you know this trust this listening and this connecting with your child that's critically important what is it that keeps you going in this work especially because you have dedicated yourself to working with high-risk dads who then would have high-risk kids you've worked with homeless populations you've gone and worked with incarcerated populations populations of dads who are receiving inpatient treatment how do you continue to have hope and do that hard work in the face of all those statistics. Yes. Um, well, I, th- for for me personally, it it's when I, when I talk about fatherhood, it really the front door to fatherhood is manhood, and so I really see that manhood, you know, be, begins at the cross. It's when you come face to face with a sacrificial, you know, love of God to sacrifice the son for you that then then you you can you know having experienced that love then you can have uh, that same type of love for someone else and you know when jesus talked about he didn't come to be served but to serve and lay down his life and so you know my faith is you know one of the things that motivates me and compels me um, and something that you know god shaped me early on is a story my mom shared with me is the first words that I spoke. And uh, she said that, uh, and, and you, to understand the impact of those words is that, you know, my mom had a very difficult life and um, she, um, you know, my dad met her in the military. Uh, he was in Korea and she grew up in a, you know, war-torn country that was occupied by Japan. There was a lot of starvation, a lot of war, uh, the threat of communism. And she came to the States and she had a, a number of mental, you know, breakdowns. But she said when I was, my first words that I said was uh, to just to her, you know, you know, don't worry, mom, dad loves you. And so there's this empathy. And so that's my superpower. Uh, but I'd say that, you know, you can look at it as a positive, but it's, you know, it can be, uh, you know, it's very negative for a child that young to have that, you know, carry that. But um, that's another thing that really propels me when I think about, you know, my own growing up experiences and then you know desired that you know sometimes it's just a simple knowing a simple thing just just like knowing the simple thing of the gospel can totally transform your life and so that's that's what motivates me is that sometimes i've i've seen those aha moments for for our father to say yeah and that changes his life as it relates to being a better father for his child um and so that's my desire not just for fathers but mothers and and families George, we appreciate you taking the time and really respect 
the work that you do, which has been so career long to invest yourself in this. Thanks for talking to some dads who are younger than you and and helping uh, leave some breadcrumbs for us as we go down this journey of parenting. All right. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for this opportunity. What did we learn today, Swai? I don't know about you, but I learned how important it is to combat toxic masculinity by being emotionally accessible and available to my child. I learned the Scandinavians make slick automobiles and slick airplanes. I also learned that there are a ton of resources out there for dads who want to be more present with their kids. Imperfect Dads was created by Ben Swihart and Christian Dashiel. We also wrote, produced, and edited this episode. Yeah, we pretty much did everything. Except the music. Oh, yeah, 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 right. Shout out to The Passion Hi-Fi for all of the music on this episode. Head over to thepassionhifi.com to check out the selection of beats and instrumentals he has available for free and for sale. Hey, thanks for listening. And thanks, George, for joining us. We'll catch you on the flip. Do you want to hear a joke? Sure. What's brown and sticky? Honey? No, a stick. Uh... (laughs) Ah.